Our first scripture reading today comes from Luke 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? He said, The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go do it likewise. Our sermon text today is from Lamentations 2. I'll be reading the whole chapter. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the habitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah He has brought down to the ground and dishonored the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of his enemy. He has burned like a flaming tree in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. And he has killed all who were delightful in her eyes. In the tent of the daughters of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid in ruins his strongholds. And he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. And in his fierce indignation has spurned king and priests. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord, as on the day of the festival. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her kings and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women in Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. 
They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have exposed not your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along their way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry, we have swallowed her. And this is the day we long for. Now we have it. We see it. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their hearts cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise. Cry out in the night, the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of anger, slaughtering without pity. You summon as if to a festival day. My terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those who I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. All right. Uplifting sermon text again. Um, So we are working our way through the book of Lamentations uh, in observance of the season of Lent. So Lent, of course, is a time when we uh, remember, call to mind, commemorate the sufferings of Christ Jesus leading up, of course, to uh, his uh, ultimate suffering on the cross. Lent, then, is a time for reflection on the brokenness of the world that all too many people experience. Uh, Lamentations is a good companion uh, for us to work through for this topic. Uh, In fact, in Judaism, uh, Lamentation is part of a group of five books called the Megillah. And those books are read during various Jewish festivals, um, different holidays. Uh, Lamentations was actually read during a festival called Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of the Jewish month of Av. Um, That day uh, commemorates the destruction of the temple by Babylon in 587, and also the destruction of the temple by the Romans in 70 AD, uh, which according to tradition, both happen on that same date. Like Lent, Tisha B'Av is a solemn time of fasting and prayer and incorporates other instances of Jewish suffering, including most recently the Holocaust. Now, last week we looked at the uh, first poem of Lamentations, and uh, just to recall a few points that are going to become important for this sermon, uh, we talked about how there were two distinct voices. Uh, one I called the narrator, and the other I called Daughter Zion. Uh, they differed in their viewpoint. The narrator gives us a distant, objective uh, view of Jerusalem after her destruction to the Babylonians. 
While observing the horror of the tragedy that had befallen Jerusalem, the narrator believes that Jerusalem has brought it on herself because she has repeatedly violated the covenant with God. Uh, The second voice I named Daughter Zion, she personifies the city of Jerusalem. And she is different from the narrator. She, she is not distant. She speaks directly to God. Um, her voice is very close. It's very emotional. It's very personal. And one of, the, it's one of the reasons that I picked this book, I'm fascinated by this idea of these different voices and the way they interact with each other. Um, I think you're going to especially notice uh, that this becomes very interesting and very important in this chapter. Now, the other key point we talked about last week was that despite daughter Zion's cries to God to be heard, one thing that is uh, disturbing, actually, is that we never hear from God in the book of Lamentations. Uh, God is silent. Uh, it's, uh, it, it's, it's difficult to read this book for that reason. That's why you don't hear sermon series on this book. Uh, and I made the point that uh, last week that God's silence, I think, is actually by design. Uh, because it allows us to hear the cry of the sufferer. Uh, God doesn't immediately jump to the happy ending that we so desperately want. And he does this for a reason. It, it, it gives dignity to the grieving. Uh, there's an honesty that is affirmed here by this aspect of faith. And that's where I think Lamentations is especially useful for us. Because uh, you know, we, we in the church want everything to be happy. Uh, we want everything to be good, and, and it's not that way all the time. There are people that are, are, are in the midst of pain and suffering and grieving, and uh, we need to have uh, we need to let them know that faith is for them as well, uh, not just for times when we're happy. Um, so I think that there is a wisdom here to the silence of God. We'll, we'll talk about that a little more in this chapter. Now, This second poem uh, that's contained in chapter two is organized very similarly to the poem in chapter one. They're almost exactly the same in that there's 22 verses and each is composed of three lines per verse uh, that begin with a consecutive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. This is another acrostic. Uh, remember, as I mentioned last week, that was actually a fairly common poetic device that was used in the ancient world. And we actually find it throughout scripture. Many Psalms uh, are organized according to an acrostic. Uh, if you uh, Probably if you open your Bible and look at Psalms 119, which is really long, um, it's divided into uh, the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, in this case, I think that the, the acrostic structure is trying to give order. Uh, this was a time of chaos and ruin. Uh, if you lived after the destruction of Babylon, uh, you would have craved any kind of order. It would have been hard to voice uh, the pain and suffering. And so the acrostic was a way to, uh, to give some sort of order to that. Now, also in chapter two, uh, the speakers are the same. We have two speakers again. We have the narrator and daughter Zion. However, there's one big difference. uh, And and I think that this difference is key to us understanding what is going on here in the second point, what we need to take away. So if you remember last week, I made a big deal that in the first chapter, the narrator and daughter Zion are given equal time. Each voice gets 11 verses, okay? Okay. 
But in chapter 2, something different happens. And you may have heard it in the reading. You may have picked up on it. Uh, the narrator completely dominates this chapter. Uh, Daughter Zion only speaks in the last two verses of this poem. So we, we have the two voices here, but in 22 verses, 20 of them are given to the narrator. Now, if you remember from last week's sermon, the narrator, like all voices in Lamentations, speaks from a particular point of view. Uh, his view is a distant one. It's objective. It's detached. He is only an observer. His interaction with daughter Zion only occurs when she interrupts him. Uh, for the narrator, daughter Zion has brought this tragedy on herself because of her disobedience. Uh, in the first chapter, daughter Zion is described like an unfaithful wife who repeatedly cheats on her husband. It's no wonder she finds herself turned out of the house. The pain and suffering daughter Zion experience is deserved from uh, the narrator's lofty vantage point. And, you know, his stance is, is he thinks he's being uh, uh, scriptural, okay? Uh, his stance is based on uh, his interpretation of Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy, God had made a covenant with the people, promising blessings for loyalty and curses for disloyalty. The people had disobeyed, and now they were suffering those very curses that Deuteronomy had talked about. In fact, we can find several instances in chapter 1 where the curses for Deuteronomy 28 are directly referred to. For the narrator, uh, Daughter Zion's devastation is simple as that. However, as we read chapter 2, we are going to find a striking change on the part of the narrator. Uh, you may have heard it a little bit, but in fact, uh, in fact, I actually looked back, the change begins very subtly in chapter 1. This is a, the thing about uh, the more you study the Bible, you realize this is actually brilliant literature. In verse 17 of the first chapter, the narrator interrupts daughter Zion, obviously moved, and says, Zion stretches out her hands, but there is none to comfort her. So we, we, we start to see a change in the narrator. He, 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 that interruption shows that he's no longer just a distant observer. And we're going to see that, that build and develop in chapter 2. Um, so let's look at chapter 2. And what we want to do is we want to try to pay particular attention to how the narrator's view toward daughter Zion has changed. It's a little bit like English class. Like if you, uh, you know, kids, uh, you know, you're taking language arts right now, but for a lot of the adults, we, we haven't read like this in a while. But you have to kind of exercise those same uh, literary muscles when you read this, which, uh, which I think is pretty interesting. Um, so chapter 2 begins with the same word as chapter 1. The word is how. It's ika in Hebrew. And, and uh, actually, in, uh, in Hebrew, uh, the names of the books of the Bible, they don't use the same names that we do. They actually name the books after the first word. So the, the name of Lamentations in Hebrew is Ika or how, which I think is a perfect name for this book. Um, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. In other words, the narrator here is picturing a barrier between God and daughter Zion so that God no longer sees her. She is forgotten, who was once his footstool. You know, the footstool is like this image of, of Israel being part of the furniture of God's throne room, um, part of his heavenly throne. There was a connection between Israel and heaven. As we continue to read, the subject continues to be God with the object daughter Zion. God swallows her up. 
He breaks down her strongholds. God cuts her down in fierce anger. God withdraws his right hand. God burns like a flaming fire. God bends back his bow. God pours out his fury. God lays waste. He scorns. He disowns. He lays ruin. He breaks her bars. Daughter Zion is reduced throughout this uh, uh, poem to a recipient of God's anger. She's an object. She no longer has any volition or initiative. She is merely acted upon. Verse 5 says that God has become like an enemy to daughter Zion. Uh, God's actions become perplexing to the narrator as the narrator notes that God acts against his own interests. He points out that how God attacks even that which, is, which, which God is associated with. God does not remember his own footstool. God lays waste his own booth that was like a garden. God lays in ruins his meeting place, his meeting place. God makes Zion forget the festivals and Sabbath that were prescribed for the worship of God. The Lord scorns his own altar. He disowns his sanctuary. What the narrator wants us to see here is that these acts, these are not the actions of someone rational. The first half of the poem is, is portraying God very negatively here. God is angry. He's ruthless. He's excessive. He's out of control. But even more striking than that is how the narrator now portrays daughter Zion. In chapter 1, the narrator refers to, 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 to Zion using pronouns, just pronouns like she and her. Now, he refers to her by name. She is no longer an object to the narrator as in chapter 1. Now, in chapter 2, she's become a subject. In verse 13, the narrator calls her the virgin daughter of Zion. Remember how he portrayed her in, in, in chapter 1. He portrayed her as an unfaithful wife. She was filthy, her nakedness exposed, and the uncleanliness of her skirts, which is now, not, it, that's how she was described in the first chapter. Now we see the narrator taking a different tone. In verse 14, the narrator actually shifts the blame for daughter Zion away from her, but instead places the blame for her fall on the prophets who have seen faults and deceptive visions. Maybe things weren't so simple and clear for the narrator as they were in chapter one. So what we can conclude, I think this is the big point here in this uh, chapter. What we can conclude from reading this chapter is that the narrator, after observing the suffering of daughter Zion, the narrator no longer finds it so easy to distantly and dispassionately conclude that daughter Zion deserves this tragedy. Furthermore, the the narrator can no longer view the situation as just a detached and distant observer. The narrator has been moved to compassion. For daughter Zion, who he no longer views simply as an object of God's just wrath. In fact, so moved is this narrator that he is now angry with God. We even find the narrator lamenting along with daughter Zion. My eyes are spent with weeping and my stomach churns. You hear the my there? This is the narrator. He's not detached anymore. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. 
He's taking ownership. He's feeling connection with this woman. The suffering has moved the narrator to the point that now he is broken alongside daughter Zion. He is no longer the objective, dispassionate observer of chapter 1. In verse 13, the narrator even begins to speak directly to daughter Zion. He wishes to comfort her, though he is unsure of who can heal her, since her ruin is as vast as the sea. He lets her know that he too notices her suffering, how those who pass by hiss and gnash their teeth at her, and how her enemies scorn her. In verse 18 and 19, uh, he tries to give daughter Zion some advice, suggesting she cry out and pour out her heart before the Lord. So what we have in chapter 2 here is a remarkable transformation on the part of the narrator. You see, by, by, by paying attention to these voices and seeing how they interact, the, the, the poet here is doing something absolutely incredible. He's showing us a narrator changing. After hearing her story, he's moved from objectivity to involvement, from detachment to compassion, from distance to near, from accusatory to sympathetic, from loathing to pity. The way these voices interact and the change brought about them by the narrator is incredible. And it is what makes this book such a powerful work. Back in chapter 1, daughter Zion cried out to a series of passerbys who responded by ignoring her. Daughter Zion's repeated cry was that someone would notice her and comfort her. Now we find the narrator doing just that. And so that reminds me of another story about someone who was in need of comfort, but a series of passerbys kept ignoring him. Uh, so if you would turn now to our other scripture reading from Luke 10, I think uh, this is going to help us this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan here, is going to help us understand a little bit more about this conversion of the narrator. So the parable of the Good Samaritan is a well-known story. This is one we, we teach our kids a lot. Uh, the story begins, of course, with a man beaten, stripped, and left for dead by a band of robbers. And then we have a priest and a Levite who see the man and ignore him and pass by on the other side of the road. However, a Samaritan stops the, and sees the beaten man and has compassion on him. He proceeds to treat and bandage his wounds and takes him to an inn where he pays for his stay while the man recuperates. Now, I love parables and I love stories. And one of the reasons I like them so much is is there's so many different layers to them. We can read them in so many different ways and they're not wrong. Uh, The different ways are not wrong. On one hand, we can view this uh, parable as a simple message. This is how we, we first learned this story, as a simple message. The moral is, of course, help other people in need. Don't be like the priest or Levite. Be like the Samaritans. Be like the Samaritan. Um, And and that is not wrong. That is a a totally great way to read this story. However, I think that there are other layers to the story that make it a bit more complex than just this initial reading. First, there are the details of the character in the story. Priests and Levites were respected religious office holders. Their neglect of this uh, injured man is striking. And so it causes us, the hearer, to ask why. 
Lots of theories have been put forth over the year by theologian, uh, theologians. Uh, perhaps it was a concern of maintaining ritual purity by avoiding a corpse. Uh, perhaps they didn't feel any responsibility. Perhaps they believed the victim was somehow at fault, inviting the attack by traveling at the wrong time with uh, obvious robbery-worthy goods. Uh, the text is simply not interested in telling us that. It actually leaves the motive for the disregard of the priest and Levite to our imaginations. By contrast, the hero of the story is identified as a Samaritan. Now, uh, here's the thing about Samaritans. They were a rival religious community that was completely despised by most Jews. Samaritans rejected the temple in Jerusalem, and they followed only the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, which they interpreted very differently than their fellow Jews. They were not considered real Jews, and they were thought to be descendants of the people resettled in northern Israel after the Assyrians conquered the region in 722 B.C., uh, Taking a beaten man to an inn in Jericho would have been risky for a Samaritan. Think of a Native American riding into town in the Old West with a white man on his back of his horse with arrows sticking out of his back. That's kind of what was going on here. People were likely to have shot first and asked questions later. So on some level, Jesus is being purposely provocative toward the prejudice of his audience by making the Samaritan the hero. But second, there's the context of the story. Jesus delivers this parable in response to a particular question by a lawyer who is testing Jesus. The lawyer and Jesus agree that the essence of the Jewish faith is summed up in devotion to God and devotion to neighbor. There's no, there's no disagreement there. However, the lawyer wants Jesus to define exactly who is a neighbor. He wants a practical application. Does he need to love his family? Does he need to love fellow Jews? Does he need to love bad Jews? Does he need to love foreigners? What about bad foreigners? What about the Romans? Who is it that the lawyer needs to love? Now, of course, we know that the answer uh, the, the parable is driving at is everyone. However, I still don't think that is quite the point of this parable here. After all, if Jesus merely wanted to make the point that you should consider everyone a neighbor without regards to prejudice, then why does Jesus make the Samaritan the hero of the story? Shouldn't Jesus just make the Samaritan the victim and have perhaps a kind-hearted lawyer stop and help the Samaritan? That telling of the story would illustrate this particular moral much more effectively, I think. So that is one characteristic of the story that's a bit odd However, the most interesting part of the story to me is how Jesus changes the question. The lawyer wants Jesus to answer the question, who is my neighbor? Yet after, the, after Jesus finishes the parable, what question does he ask the lawyer? Who was a neighbor? To me, this is the most significant part of the story and explains why the Samaritan is the hero and not the victim. Okay, so how does this change in question help us to understand the meaning of the parable? You see, here's what I think is going on here. For the lawyer, a neighbor is just an object. 
That is, the neighbor is a recipient of the action of a subject. What Jesus does is he changes the story so that the neighbor is a hero. The neighbor has become the subject who was a neighbor. In other words, part of the point of this parable is that one cannot define a neighbor. One can only be a neighbor. See, I think the real reason Jesus tells the story and the reason he flips this question is because, because what Jesus wants the lawyer to understand is that if your point, if what you are trying to decide is who is and who is not a neighbor, then you miss the point. The parable undercuts the entire premise of the lawyer's question. The love Jesus advocates here has no limits or boundaries. What Jesus wants the lawyer to understand is something so radical, it's almost too much. His very identity is not about who he is and who others are, but the need to change his identity to being a neighbor. It is this insight that the narrator has come to in the second poem of Lamentations, exactly this point. Moved by the suffering and grief of daughter Zion, he no longer sees her as an object to delimit, to classify, to judge. His distance and objectivity has given way to compassion and sympathy. He sees her as a person, and therefore he can no longer hold her at arm's length. He consoles her. He defends her. He cries with her, and he attempts to comfort her, evenly, angrily confronting God for her. He has a new identity now. No longer the narrator, but the comforter. He has become a neighbor. Um, Daughter Zion, too, has a new identity in this poem. She is no longer the faithless wife deserving of all the punishment uh, that has been meted out to her. She is the virgin victim who has been misled by her leaders. Her suffering demands that her case be heard. But again, we are, of course, confronted with lamentations with this problem of the silence of God. The silence of God in this book is the most perplexing and troubling part. Yet, perhaps here again, we see that God's silence has another purpose. God's silence has allowed for this change of heart on the part of the narrator. It allows the narrator to be moved in a way that could not be anticipated in chapter 1. And so this, I think, is what's important for us to understand. This is why we're working through this book. This is why we are choosing a series that is difficult and really not one I want to do. Uh, I really would much rather come here and tell you uh, a nice, uplifting message. Uh, I would rather study a nice, uplifting message. But here is, I think, what, what, why the church needs lament. Because what lament does is it forces us to think outside our own identity, identity and look toward others. To not ignore those voices who have left out, been left out. Those the world would choose to ignore and pass by. To listen and to hear those voices and become filled with pity, compassion, and mercy, just as the narrator has, to empathize with them and even advocate for them, to ensure that their voice is heard and not forgotten, to cry and to stand alongside them without concern about who's at blame or fault. For the narrator, it no longer matters that daughter Zion has transgressed the covenant. All that matters is that she is in pain, and she's hurting, and she needs a comforter, and so he responds. She has a new identity now. Lament allows us to see that we are connected to a bigger world, a community, a neighborhood, 
something bigger than our own individual lives, to understand we are part of this community and to focus uh, beyond our limiting boundaries, to believe that God's mercy and justice should be something that should be extended to the whole world because the entire creation belongs to the world. You know, I was thinking through the book of Lamentations and some of the issues here and uh, comparing it to different parts of scriptures. And in some ways, you could think of, uh, you can see where the book of Lamentations resembles the book of Job. Both books center on the issue of why bad things happen. Uh, both contain some of the greatest poetry uh, in world literature because this issue is so difficult. Both are composed of multiple voices uh, arising from different uh, perspectives that work to try to explore the full range of pain and suffering. However, of course, there's a big difference. The book of Job centers on the righteous sufferer. And Lamentations is centering on someone who is unrighteous. Now, I don't know, about, I don't know when the last time you read the book of Job was, but let me how, tell you how Job is described blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Here's what Job says in his defense at one point. I delivered the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to help him. The blessing of him who was about to perish came upon me and I caused the widow's heart to sing for joy. I put on righteousness and it clothed me. My justice was like a robe and a turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy, and I searched out the cause of him who I did not know. I don't know about you, but daughter Zion is a person I think I can relate to much better than Job. And Lamentations is an answer for that person, for the unrighteous sufferer. What Lamentations tells us is that they too should be comforted. We have a word for it. It's called grace. Grace for the hurting and those in pain, regardless of the circumstances of their situation. Allowing ourselves to be moved by others will result just not, not just in mercy and grace, but also for cries of justice. Lament acknowledges that injustice has been done. No matter daughter Zion's fault, the Babylonians have violently oppressed her, and it is wrong, and their blood and tears demand to be answered for Naming justice can lead to awareness and healing. The alternative means focusing only on success and leads to laziness and an acceptance of the status quo. If you are someone who thinks about the church and thinks about what our role is and what Christianity should be and how we can be relevant in a culture that has become increasingly irreligious, I think lament can give us a potential solution. Think about what a difference our place in society might have been had the church as a whole embraced the civil rights movement, spoke out against South African apartheid. Certainly parts of our church did, but not the united front that would, I think, have made a bigger impact. As the church laments, it can become an advocate of sufferers, and it can call out for justice. This is part of what we, the church, are called into this world for. It's our prophetic voice. Ignoring lament has largely led to us ignoring this call. Embracing lament can help us retain this prophetic voice, a voice that looks toward God and his kingdom and tells the world loudly that there is a better 
different way of being human. A way of grace, a way of pity, a way of compassion, of mercy, a way that embraces and seeks to heal the tears of this world by being a neighbor. This too is what it means to lament.